Produced by PI Media. Hi and welcome to the Wix Engineering Podcast. My name is Ran Levy. The internet is an amazing thing to participate in, but the only reason why it's worth looking at is because of CSS, cascading style sheets. CSS usually comes in the form of a text file that accompanies the HTML file and holds styling directives that define the shape, color, and position of the content on a web page. Anybody under 30 probably can't imagine life without it. To those of us who remember the 90s, let's face it, the web was great, we all loved it, but it wasn't exactly pretty. Today, CSS is so ubiquitous that it might seem like things had to have ended up this way. We assume that CSS is a natural outgrowth of the modern internet. But it isn't. In fact, CSS nearly didn't make it at all. In the early 2000s, the digital space was dominated by one company, Microsoft, that wasn't all too keen on the idea of a style sheet language they weren't in charge of. It was only because a select group of people fought hard against the powers that be that cascading style sheets became what it is today. The leader of that group, the individual responsible for first proposing the language in 1994, is our guide for this first episode of the Wix Engineering Culture podcast. So my name is Håkon Wiemli. I'm Norwegian, and my name is very Norwegian, so it's a bit hard to say in English. The full significance of CSS is best understood by comparing the internet we've had the past 10 or 15 years with the one we had to look at before styling was taken seriously in cyberspace. So before CSS came around, uh, each browser basically had a hard-coded style sheet. Uh, for example, if you used Mosaic, an early browser, uh, there was some code in there that uh, you could influence a little bit. You could set the font size, for example, for headlines and such. But it was basically a hard-coded thing that you needed to recompile Mosaic in order to change. For example, the background was always gray, which turned out to be, you know, for the first months of Mosaic, it was like heaven. You know, you could do incredible things with Mosaic. You could click on the... Uh, a link and get to somewhere else, another computer, another continent, another document. But you got a little uh, tired of those, you know, gray backgrounds after a while and those, you know, Helvetica fonts that were only available. So you wanted to, you know, say a little more, especially designers who came to the web. The first question they asked was, you know, how do I change the font size or how do I get the background to be to be white or black or red or, or blue? Um, and the answer was, well, you can't really do anything about that. So they were sort of disappointed. Hmm, hmm, you know, what can we do? And they actually found a way to get around this limitation, and that was to create a GIF image. Um, Mosaic introduced uh, support for images, and as we know, you can put text into a GIF image, and you can set a background in a GIF image. So instead of writing HTML, people started, you know, making images and send around and 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 
therefore, the web was quickly on its way to become a, a giant fax machine. You know, remember fax machines? Um, fax machines, that's where you take a picture of a document and you send that picture along. And it's not a very good idea because compression is, is terrible and you can't really do anything in the receiving end except show it to a human being. You can't show it to a, you can't easily give it to a search engine, for example. Uh, and you can't easily give it to a blind person. It has all these, these drawbacks. By 1994, the industry was moving away from, rather than towards, more advanced styling. Mosaic, the browser which possessed a functional monopoly in the months leading up to Hawkins CSS proposal, was what we might call a fashion crime. It allowed users to change some colors and font types on their web pages, but little else. In Hawkins' book, Cascading Style Sheets, Design for the Web, he quotes one of Mosaic's own programmers in 1994, who, perhaps better than anyone, summed up the problem. Quote, It has been a constant source of delight for me over the past year to get to continually tell hordes, literally, of people who want to strap yourselves in, here it comes, control what their documents look like in ways that would be trivial in text, Microsoft Word, and every other common text processing environment, sorry, you're screwed. End quote. So, therefore, instead of uh, heading down the image path, um, I proposed CSS as a way of keeping uh, HTML around to, to make sure people, you know, wrote HTML code um, properly and then uh, did the styling outside of HTML so that you could set the font sizes and the colors and the backgrounds and everything you wanted, but you did it outside of HTML. This was crucial. CSS effectively separated the content and presentation layers of the web. Handling presentation on its own terms allows for all kinds of powers that the old integrated paradigm didn't allow for. For example, it allows reuse of styling elements across different web pages, and keeping the presentation layer separate from the content means it's easier to modify the presentation without introducing new bugs in the content layer. It also allows for greater flexibility in presentation and the ability to adjust to different devices and screens. Hawken wasn't the first person to think of separating content from presentation. Steve Jobs' next browser slash editor, for example, allowed for style sheets but did not specify their syntax. A couple of smaller browsers had their own primitive styling languages, that was about it. What made CSS different wasn't that it was the first to distinguish a presentation layer of the web. It wasn't that CSS was so superior to the other styling languages of the time. Actually, Hukun's first proposal wasn't fully developed yet and only somewhat resembles what CSS would eventually turn into. What really made CSS different was one simple concept, cascading. 
The basic idea of a cascade in web design is that the style of each element in a page is determined by several different style sheets and a system of rules that define which style sheets take precedence over the others. Here's an analogy you might find familiar if you're old enough. I have three kids, and they all have tablets and smartphones. The rule of the house is no smartphones, computers, or tablets after 8 p.m. I return home one evening, say at 9 p.m., and I find one of the kids playing Brawl Stars on his phone. I say, hey, what gives? We've got a rule in this house, mister. After all... I am the dad, and I make the rules in this establishment. And then the kid says, Mom says I can't. And that's the end of it. <sighs> Similarly, a browser might have a default style sheet that defines, for example, a white background for all web pages. Then the author of a specific page might define another style sheet with a different color, say blue, and that new style sheet takes precedence over the default one for that specific page. This cascading flow of styles and rules of precedence has great benefits for both designers and users. For example, if the website you're creating is for a large organization with many different stakeholders with vastly different style needs, CSS allows you to define one default style for the entire website and different style sheets for, say, different departments that affect only their part of the website. Or if you're a user who needs bigger fonts, CSS allows you to define your own font size regardless of the size defined by the page's author. In other words, the CSS proposal recognized how styling on the internet is not static, but determined between developers and users in unison. Its values were not set in stone, but ordered according to their precedence and applied situationally. Hawken demonstrated the power of this simple paradigm during Developers' Day at Chicago's November 1994 Mosaic and the Web conference with a made-up slider that could theoretically adjust a page's presentation according to a user or author's preferences. But it wasn't entirely obvious, even to smart people at this stage in the process, that this new format was anything more than a pretty good idea. It was, it was quite well received. There was an active group of people discussing web development at the time. It wasn't a lot of people, maybe you know, 50 or 100 people on that mailing list. Uh, but these were smart people, you know, these were people who had stumbled across the web at, a, at, a, at an early age, so to say. And uh, they were, you know, many of them didn't care about styling at all, but, but some did. And I met Bert Boss there. Uh, he joined me in designing what, what came um, about as a, as a CSS recommendation a couple of years later. What began as one man's post on a small mailing list soon turned into a community-wide effort. The journey in transforming CSS from a rough idea into an effective web standard was long and laborious. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I was working for CERN at the time, and, and I shared office with Tim Berners-Lee. The Tim Berners-Lee, best known for 
you know, inventing the World Wide Web. So I was, you know, a little bit closer to, to power uh, than most people. Um, at the same time, uh, it wasn't, there were no standard organizations at that time. Uh, Tim started uh, the World Wide Web Consortium a little later, and when he did, um, I was invited in, and I was actually the, the first employee in Europe. Uh, so I, I was able to continue my proposal um, within the W3C, but, you know, you, ha you can't, as a staff member, you don't have power to decide anything. It's all being decided by the members. And thankfully, member companies that were also browser vendors stepped up. In a particular, Microsoft was very eager to do CSS, to do styling. Like every good rivalry story, Hocken and Microsoft started off as the best of friends. The Internet's biggest company was CSS's biggest champion in those early days. Well, it, it, was, it was great. Uh, it was Thomas Reardon. He was a program manager for, for the Internet Explorer browser. Um, uh, he, he was kind of the, the, the man leading that effort and saying, this is something we've got to do. And he had good programmers, uh, Chris Wilson, for example, uh, come along and, and, and do the implementation. Uh, so, so, you know, I was very excited about that. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I was happy to work with Microsoft. So they implemented uh, CSS even before it became a recommendation. They did so in, in IE3. Um, I don't think you have many users using IE3 anymore, but it was a very early, a very important browser, the first, first browser from, from Microsoft. And, and, and by, by you know, implementing CSS, they sent a strong signal about standards to the other browser vendors like, like Netscape um, that, you know, this is, this is where we're heading. Then it meant that the, others, uh, the other browser vendors also came along because Microsoft, you know, it's a big player. You, you want to, you know, follow what they're doing. You can't let them surpass you. And thankfully, we were able to, to gather support from, from all of them, um, Netscape, Microsoft, even Opera, which I later joined, uh, implemented CSS. So there was kind of a consensus-building process there. And in 1996, it was turned into a, a recommendation. Not two full years after first proposed, CSS was already on its way to becoming a universal standard. Having it in Netscape, Internet Explorer 3, and some of the other smaller browsers meant that nearly everybody on the Internet would soon be using CSS-enabled browsers. Except if everything was going to go this well, we'd have a pretty boring podcast on our hands. Hawken and the small community of developers around him had just stepped into the middle of a war. During the years when Hawken Lee was first developing and marketing CSS, the market for internet browsers was fluctuating wildly. At the beginning of 1994, Mosaic held nearly 100% market share in internet browsing. Netscape entered the market that spring, and by the fall, Mosaic lost an entire third of its base. Cut to April 96, and Netscape owned approximately 90% of the market. But just as quickly, Microsoft licensed Mosaic in building Internet Explorer. The world's foremost browser died, and in its wake came the browser that would eventually kill off its killer. Imagine being in the middle of all this chaos. 
browsers were living and dying in cycles of two, three years. The companies that supported them were eating each other and getting eaten. I do think it's very important that if you're going to claim If you're going to claim to support a specification, you have to do it uh, uh, honestly, realistically, and you have to fulfill you know, most of, of what's in there. And it turned out that both Microsoft and Netscape didn't really want to do standards right. They wanted to have the checkbox item, um, but, but they had other concerns. They were you know, competing very hard with each other. Um, and we tried to push the, you know, this, you should see, standards as kind of a common foundation, and then you should do the competition on top of that. The problem wasn't that Netscape was fighting with Microsoft, but that their fight incentivized each side to ruin the very thing that would make CSS so useful to web developers. To fulfill its destiny, CSS had to work uniformly, equivalently across the whole web. The word we use for this is CSS. interoperability. But this uniformity also means that users could potentially switch between different browsers seamlessly. And that's something that both companies weren't exactly thrilled about, to put it mildly. Both wanted to keep their users, and making it easier to switch browsers wasn't in their best interests. But if some browsers didn't integrate CSS or integrate it differently than other browsers, creators of web pages would be the ones to suffer. You quickly run into interoperability problem where you had to write one style sheet for Internet Explorer and another for, for Netscape. That was not a good uh, place to be in for web developers. You obviously, unless you're charging by the hour, you don't really want to sit down and write, you know, X number of style sheets or, or various HTML files uh, for a document. And even if you charge by the hour, it's very boring work, so you, you don't want to do it. So there was also a community effort to try to make all browsers um, comply with the standards. And, and by that time, Microsoft's Internet Explorer was the dominant browser. Put these factors together and you have a recipe for disaster. The community's desire for interoperability and the oppositional corporate interests of the major Internet companies were in direct opposition. Netscape and Microsoft were looking for any edge they could get on one another. It was as if Hocken had stepped into the middle of World War II and asked, "Can't we all just get along?" Between 1998 and 2000, Internet Explorer's market share more than doubled. Netscape held less than 20% market share by the turn of the millennium and less than 4% just two years later. Microsoft had won the war in a rout. This solved the problem of having to deal with two competing Internet giants, but it introduced a whole new problem that was, frankly, Even worse. This new problem forced Hocken Lai to stand up against the world's biggest tech company and the world's richest man. That's where we'll pick up in the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening. The Wix Engineering Podcast is produced by 
PI Media, written by Nate Nelson, edited by Guy B. Noon, and narrated by me, Rand Levy. See you next episode. Bye-bye. For more engineering insights, follow Weeks Engineering's blog, YouTube, Twitter, and subscribe to their newsletter.